We're reading out of Romans today, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may, be, may have a new life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we will certainly be united with him in, in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might not be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Great to see you. Thank you for allowing uh, Lisa and I to be away uh, last week. We really enjoyed our trip. Thank you very much. I know Jamie did a great job in ministering the word. Heard some great reports over that. Don't you just love Jamie? He's amazing. He's awesome. So appreciate him very much. And uh, Lisa and I went up into area of Tennessee that we haven't been in in about 30 years. And so enjoy that. And we saw some places that we were at 30 years ago and then some new places as well. And at one point in time, we were traveling down the road and Lisa said, do you know where we're at? I said, I have no idea. I'm just following this little magic box that's telling me what road to go on. So she grabbed her phone and said, hey, Siri, where, are, where am I? I? I quote Siri, I don't know where you are. <laughs> That's exactly what we heard. We just busted up laughing. It was so funny. So, but we really enjoyed it uh, very, very much. So uh, thank you for allowing, allowing us to get away. Next week, I'm going to give you a, a report on our missions giving, our commitments for next, uh, for next year. So I'll be uh, sharing that with you next week. As Mickey just read in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, it really talks about baptism. But it talks about death and it talks about life. And when it comes to our life as Christians, we must experience both, experience death and experience life. I, I kind of openly hope that you'll stay here for the second service. I know my sermon's not good enough to hear twice, but if you'll be here, you'll see eight people get baptized. And so that's just fantastic. And we're really pumped up about that. In fact, there may be more just spontaneously being baptized. You just never know. But I'm really looking forward to that. So I want to talk to you today, though, about new life and the new life that we have in Christ. So it's been a, a couple of years. Lisa and I have been married just a couple of years, so we're looking back there in the 80s. And there was a gentleman who came to the church that I was a youth pastor at, and he gave his life to Christ. He was so excited about this life. He was probably in his 50s, young guy. And, uh, and so he was a builder. He built houses. In fact, he had the Guinness Book of World Records for the fastest house ever built. 
And he went to me one day and he says, I want to build you a house. Lisa and I have been married just a couple of years. We weren't ready for that. But he said, all you have to do is pay for the materials and you can get your friends to do the labor if you want. I won't charge you a dime. Though we weren't ready, we thought we can't pass this up. And so we got a piece of graph paper. Anybody remember what that is? And so we, we asked him, he said, well, how, we don't know, you know how much that's going to cost. He gave us the amount of money per square foot. So then we had our dimensions. This is what we can afford. Now what can we put inside of that box? And so it was a very small and modest house, but it was so fun to sit there with graph paper and decide, okay, where's the garage? Where's the kitchen, the living room? And we just started laying things out and we would, you know, that, that, that didn't work and we would change it and we would, and it was just kind of a fun project to think about what could be. And of course, that was such a modest thing. Of course, now looking back 40 years later, almost 40 years, we wish we would have kept that little piece of graph paper. I think that would be cool to look at. But it's in the eons of trash somewhere. But now our little experience of trying to line out just this little bitty starter home was fun. But let's look at some work of some people who really are great architects. This first guy is Antoni Gotti. Now, that guy's an architect. I, that makes our little house look pretty superfluous, right? <laughs> it's like that is something that he saw and he envisioned, and then he was able to make it happen. Now, one, an architect that's probably familiar with most of us is Frank Lloyd Wright. Had a way of making a home where you felt like, I guess, you were really in nature. Next guy is Frank Gehry. That's incredible. That's actually water there at the bottom. It, it makes it look like this house is like a ship on, on, the, on the water. Amazing. Architects are phenomenal people because they see things that others don't see. They think things that others don't think they dream what other people don't dream they have they have an imagination that is not limited to to what we see and what we experience their imagination goes beyond our experience and beyond what we can touch and feel and all of that it, it, their imagination is just phenomenal it's like it's it's somewhat like a person who never grows up because children love to dream, right? Children's dreams are not limited to reality. And so children are like architects. In fact, uh, Frank W. Borman, in his book, Shadows on the Wall, published in 1922, wrote a little bit about architects and children and how they're very similar to one another. I just want to read a portion of it for you. For imagination is the realm in which small children and great architects disport themselves. Babies, said Dr. Johnson, babies do not want to hear about babies. They like to be told of giants and castles. Precisely. They like to see castles, giants' castles, castles in the air. And it is the business of the architect to, just, to see just such castles, houses that do not yet exist, and to draw realistic pictures for less imaginative people. The architect is a citizen of the land that never was. He lives by the fine flight of fancy. He deals in dreams. He is eternally engaged in building castles in the air. 
He inhabits a charmed domain in which ordinary mortals may not enter. He walks through the world with his head in the clouds, and it is a good thing for us that he does. For it is because he has his head in the clouds that we have our feet on the fender. It is because he builds castles in the air that we dwell in houses on the earth. It is because he lives in the land that never was that we live in the land that really is. Our houses of brick and stone were once his houses of vision and dream. And it is only because he saw them dreaming that we see them waking. The architect sees more, imagines more, dreams more, and has a way of bringing it into reality. I want us to take the next 15, mo- 15 minutes, or it might have turned into 15 moments, where we're just going to overview the Bible. We're going to start at the beginning and go through and just begin to see God as the great architect of our salvation. Nothing ever surprises God because before the world began, as an architect, he is thinking and dreaming and looking and can I dare say imagining. And of course, he has the power to bring it into realization. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But why did he do that? He did that so that he would love and be loved. But by definition, love must have a choice. If you have no choice, you cannot love. And so in making his creation, he could not make us as robots, but yet he made us with a free will that we could choose what to do and what not to do. And so here we find that Adam and Eve uh, took the opportunity with that free will instead of simply walking the course of life in in responsive love to God, they decided we're going to do our own thing and we're going to choose something other than love and obedience. And of course, then sin entered the world and that did not surprise God. God didn't wake up and go, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. It didn't surprise him. Before the world began, he knew and he understood. Sin is both seen and known by everybody. It's so obvious. Turn on the news, you're going to see sin. Probably watch a movie and you're going to see sin. Have a conversation with someone and you're going to hear about sin. Sin is so obvious to all of us, but sin is viewed differently by different people. Some people view sin as simply if, it, if, I, if I do something hostile toward myself, that is sin, but nothing else. It doesn't matter how I treat other people. It's just me. If I harm myself or I don't allow myself to progress forward, if I limit myself, well, that's a sin. Other people would broaden it out and say, well, if I, if I do something that's hostile toward another person, then that's sin. But as long as I treat people well, then there's no sin, but if I, if I harm or do something hostile toward one person, then, then that's sin. Other people broaden it out further and say, well, if I, if I do something that harms society, plant a bomb in a building that kills innocent people, if I do something against society, well, then that is sin. But of course, the Bible tells us that if we do something hostile toward God, that is what sin is. When we rebel against God, we do something hostile toward him, that is what sin is. Yet if we take all of the other three, the the other elements and aspects or views of sin, 
harming ourselves, harming another individual, or harming society. We fall short of what sin really is. But if we, if we understand that last one, if we are hostile toward God, it actually incorporates all of the other three. If we're hostile toward God, we will sin against society, an individual, and ourselves. But if we are obedient to God and in love with God and following him, then what we find is that not only do we treat society well, we treat another individual well, and we treat ourselves well. And so sin is when we are in violation of God. Sin always results in bondage. And as God chose that nation of Israel to be his example of his faithfulness and his love and and their responsive love to him, the nation of Israel always would find themselves in bondage when they turned their backs on God. When they turned toward God and were walking then again in obedience, God would bless them and prosper them and elevate them, and yet they would turn their back on God once again and they would shrink down into bondage. One such time is, of course, when the nation of Israel was in bondage to Egypt for 400 years in slavery. And God brought them out of that slavery because of his grace. And it was after that that God gave them the laws in which they were to live. You see, God never gives us how he wants us to live until after he's rescued us. He always saves us first and then says, okay, now here's how I want you to live. He never says, hey, clean up your act. Do what's supposed to be right. You need to be obedient and then I'll save you. He says, no, I'm going to save you. I'm going to pull you out of that. Now, here's how I want you to live. And then he tells us and shows us and leads us into it. That's the way God has always operated and that's the way he still does. For thousands of years, men have demonstrated that we do not have a heart that can obey God without God rescuing us and making a transformation in our lives. We have tried and tried and tried over thousands of years to love God and be obedient to Him in our own strength, and for thousands of years, man has proven that it is absolutely incapable. We are absolutely incapable. But again, this does not surprise God. And God, before the world began in his architectural mind, decided to make a way where man could love him and man could be obedient. And what is that way? How is it that that can even happen how is it that that's even possible is it through moralism is it is it through that just, I'm just going to be a better person I'm going to treat myself better and I'm going to treat the other individual better I'm going to treat society better is is it moralism we just have to be better well that always fails doesn't it because our heart is not toward God it is toward ourselves and it is toward this world and it's toward sin and so moralism always fails but is it through education well if we'll just we'll just learn more and and get better degrees and more degrees and keep learning and learning and our education will finally be our salvation well education is great education has its place but education can never bring about transformation it was Theodore Roosevelt who said this he said a man who has never gone to school may steal from the freight car 
But if he has a university education, he may steal the whole railroad. It wasn't that President Roosevelt was against education. He was just simply saying, education may change your mind, but it does not change your heart. And that's where the issue is. The issue is our heart and not simply what we have in our mind. But here in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, verse 19, God one more time reveals his plan, this great architect reveals his plan to change man's heart. He said, I will give them an undivided heart. He didn't say they will earn an undivided heart. It doesn't say they'll become good enough to have an undivided heart. He said, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That stony heart, that, that determined heart to do it my way. He said, that's the problem. And I'm going to take that out of them and I'm going to put an, a new heart within them. He repeats this in Ezekiel 36. He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There is the crux of our salvation. It is that God in his wisdom, discernment, and may I dare say in his dreaming about the future and the eons of time before the world was began, was, was created. He said, I've got a plan. I've got a plan that my creation, my special creation, human beings, are going to love me. They're going to love me because I'm going to provide the way for them to love me and I am going to cause them when they put their faith in me to have a change of heart. That old nature of, of being driven towards sin and led towards sin and, and a slave to sin, I'm going to remove that from them and I'm going to put within them a heart, a new spirit, a new heart that is soft and pliable before me. He says, I'm going to create the way in which they can love me. But how do we receive this new heart? Because it's truly a gift. It's not something that is earned or deserved. How do we receive this transformation beyond education, beyond moralism? How is this new heart received? And it's simply by putting our faith in God's Savior, the one that he provided, a Savior that can cause that transformation in our lives. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid the price for our sin. He took upon himself all of the sin of the world, everyone who's ever lived or ever will live and everyone who's living now and all of the sin that all of those people have committed or will ever commit were on his shoulders on the cross. And he hung there, not because of his sin, but because of your sin and my sin. He took on himself all of the weight and the guilt and the shame of that sin. And he died on the cross. And he was buried. 
He didn't faint. He didn't just kind of lose it for a little bit. He died on the cross. He died not because he deserved to die. He took on our death. He brought on himself our death. And he took it on himself. And he died. And three days later, after being in the tomb, he rose from the dead. But why? He rose from the dead because death could not hold him. He had never sinned. He was simply carrying our sin. And I would dare say that, and this is more of a picture, in that tomb, he was just like saying, okay, now I can take this off. I'm not carrying the weight of anyone's sin now. It's been paid for. It's done. The blood has been shed. And now he takes that sin off. And now death cannot hold him because he had never sinned. And he rose from the dead to prove that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior that God has chosen. All that came before, all that might come after that would claim to be the Messiah, the Savior, absolutely not. Let him rise from the dead and then we'll talk. But he's the one who rose from the dead. And it is when you and I put our faith in Christ as God's Savior that he bore our sin on the cross he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead on the third day. When we put our faith in God's Savior, when we come to him and say, God, I can't save myself. My education can't save me. Whatever attainment of moralism, that can't save me either. I need a Savior, and I'm putting all of my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the dead to prove that he is the Messiah, the Savior that God has provided. And he lives today to make sure that his promises are going to be real in my life. Lord, I need a Savior, and I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. That is the moment in which God says, now I take out of you that heart that is driven toward sin, a slave to sin, and now I'm putting in you a new heart in which you will be able to love me willfully as your choice. You get to love me and be obedient to me. And God provides all of that through salvation when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so what is water baptism? We're going to be baptizing eight or more people today. And so what is water baptism? As we just read, Paul is writing to the book, uh, to the church at Rome. And he's saying that this water baptism is a sign that says there is a death, burial, and resurrection. You know, we, we, today in, in, in America, and I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America, we've, we've kind of morphed in the last 25 years into a salvation by simply accepting the fact that God loves you. He wants the best for you. It's going to be amazing. Everything's great and wonderful. And we don't hear a whole lot about death. But the word of God tells us in Romans chapter 6, if we have not been united in death, then we have no resurrection. We must be united together with Christ's death. What does that mean? What he's saying is my old way of living, my old nature is now crucified with Christ and it's no longer alive. The life that I now have is a resurrected life just as Christ was resurrected and now by faith I live and I can be obedient because my old nature, 
My, that nature that's driven toward and a slave to sin is now dead, and now I have a new life. God has taken out of me that heart of sin, and he's placed within me a heart that can be obedient to him. It is the gift of salvation. It is a transformation that is unlike any other. And so baptism is a symbol, it is a sign where those who are being baptized are making a declaration. My old way of living, my old heart is dead and now I've been given a new heart. Now I have a new way of living and now I can please God because he has brought my life from death to life. Here's my question to you in a, in a, in a more of a, not pragmatism, but just simply the, the practicing of our lives. Have, has your life changed? See, you can't, you can't become a Christian, you can't be a Christian without your life changing. In other words, if, if we are living a life of sin, as we all do before Christ, we're just, we're just drawn towards sin, we love sin, it's, it's where we gravitate towards, it's where we're just naturally drawn toward it. We come to a church service or a Bible study or wherever, whatever, we say a prayer, Lord, please come into my heart, whatever. We say a prayer, but then we say nothing changes. Nothing changes. We just keep doing what we're doing. We, have, we, we, don't, we said a prayer, but our heart hasn't changed. We have no, we have no, we're not led toward God or even driven toward God. We're still doing the same things we've done. I submit to you, unless you have a new heart, you still have the old heart. And in America today, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America today, the church must get back to, if your life isn't changed, then your life isn't changed. We can't just say it's a prayer. Even getting dunked in water. I went forward in a church, shook the preacher's hand, they dunked me in water, and I still was not a Christian. It wasn't years later until I became born again and God transformed my life. And then I was redunked, rebaptized for those who are spiritual. Because it was when I was tr born again on a Monday night laying in my bed, that's when the change happened. And all of a sudden I had a new heart. I had a new life. Have you been changed? Has God changed your life? I know who I'm preaching to today. I get it. But that is the transformation that God has designed for every one of us. And in raising our children, those who are still in that process, well, I don't know if you ever get out of it, but anyway. You're raising your children. We want our children to be good, and we want to teach them about God. We want to teach them about doing good, and don't lie, and don't cheat, and don't steal, and that's good. We need to do that. But listen, the... It, it, it's, it's not a, a lifestyle that we create that causes us to be pleasing to God. It is a heart that he transforms, causes us to be pleasing to him. So we've got to be careful. Yes, teach your children to do good, especially when they're in this building, because we, we like good children in this building. But you know what we want more? We want some real rascals coming in here getting saved. We, we want some real problems coming in and getting saved. 
We want some kids coming in here that don't have any idea what church is all about. Thank God and getting saved. You know what I'm saying? We, we, need, we need to be pulling our hair out a little bit going, what is this kid doing? But our goal is to see their lives transformed by the power of God. And the same with some adults too. You've heard me say it, and this is not really off subject. If somebody walks into this building with a beer in their hand, they're welcome in Hope Crossings. They can sit on the back row, they can sit on the front row and drink a beer, right? Okay. Do I want that? Yeah. Yeah. Because transformation is what it's all about. Do you think it scares God that somebody would drink a beer in, in this building? You think that God's going, oh, what are we going to do now? God's going to preach the gospel to them. Tell them how much I love them. Tell them how much I, I can change their life. Tell them how much they don't, they don't have to be an alcoholic anymore. And they, they can't overcome by themselves and become a Christian. It is through the transformation of the power of God when he takes out of us a heart of stone and he puts within us a heart of flesh. That's when the alcoholic gives up the alcohol. That's when the drug addict gives up the drugs. That's when the homosexual says, nope, no more of that. I need, I need to do it God's way. That's when all that happens. And that's when you and I come to that point where we say, okay, God, I'm going your way. I can, I can willfully love you now because you have given me a heart, a new heart. And why have you done that? Simply because I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the provision that you have given to us. That is the change. My question today, and I know who I'm talking to, have you done that? Has, has your life been changed? If it hasn't, ask God to save you. Put your faith in Christ and say, God, he is your Messiah. He's my Savior. I accept what Christ did on the cross for my sin." See, we got to first come to, to God and say, I got a heart that just will not serve you, and I don't want that heart. I want a new heart. I want the heart that you give. So would you take out of me this, this badness, this, this nature towards sin, and give me a new nature? He'll do it. That's why he went to the cross. Amen? Now, I know who I'm talking to today. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we need to tell people about. It's not about, hey, you need, to, you need to stop drinking and God will do something great in your life. No, God will do something great in their life so they'll stop drinking. Hey, you need to get off cocaine. Let God do something great in their life. They'll get off cocaine. You, we okay here today? And see, that's where we, we come and we say, you know what? My old way of living is dead. We're going to bury that guy. And now I'm raised to walk in a newness of life. Amen? And it is when we go public with that. I don't know, many times just something just happens in people's lives. It just, something happens because it's like they go, pub, they go public and they go, I'm all in. I'm all in. I acknowledge my old way's gone, my new way's here. There's going to be no stopping me now. Amen? There may be some of you who want to get rebaptized. I'm all for that. I'm good with that. So don't worry. We got a towel for you. Okay? You can go home wet, but we got a towel for you. All right? Have, has that happened in your life? Has it happened in your family's life? Has it happened in your children's lives? Man, that's our prayer today. Amen? Here's how I want us to end this uh, worship service today. Number one is this. I want to, as always, and again, I know who I'm talking to, but I want to give an opportunity to say, you know what? 
is today your day to say, you know, I've been trying to do it on my own. I've been trying to love God on my own. It's just not working. I just keep flopping and failing. And God is saying, I need to take out of you that, that heart of stone and I'll put a new heart in you. He can do that today, right now. Let him do that. Ask him. But what about what we are telling people in our family, our brothers, sisters, cousins, all that stuff, our neighbors, the people we work with? Have we accidentally slipped into, hey, you need to stop doing that. Hey, you need to get better. Hey, you need to improve. Or should we just simply go back to the gospel and say, is your faith in Christ? Is your faith in Christ? I know we're in the South, right? Everybody's a Christian. Everybody knows the right answer, right? So maybe the question should be different. Maybe the question should be, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Are you born again? Everybody knows, everybody knows that terminology. Maybe we need to come up with a new terminology like, has your life changed? Are you still doing the same things that you've always done? Well, then maybe you need to check your heart. Check your heart. Is it stony or is it soft and pliable? Amen.